worship. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're Matthew chapter 24, looking at verses 32 through 51. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we got guys ready to give you one. Keep it up high. They'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew 24 this morning, verses 32 through 51, as we uh, finish up Matthew 20, chapter 24 today. So, Don't make fun of me, Laura. <laughs> it's the first of many times I'll fumble over my words this morning. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking here, starting in verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of, uh, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at a mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his, his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The title of my message this morning is, The Times They Are A-Changing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be in your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us understanding of your word as we uh, dig into it, Lord, that you've given us application as well as information. Lord, help it to change our lives. Lord, to draw us closer into our relationship with you. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church this morning. And Father, we do pray if anyone has joined us, it is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, to have their sin forgiven. We pray, Lord, that you would especially speak to their heart this morning. Make sure they don't leave here without making that commitment to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The question was asked, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Few answers. The Charismatics, only one. Their hands are already in the air. The Pentecostals, ten. One to change a bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians, none. Lights will go on and off at predestined times. 
Baptist, at least 15, one to change the light bulb, and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings a potato salad and fried chicken. Now, not all of these are, are Christian. How many Mormons does it take to change the light bulb? Five, one man to change the bulb, and four wives to tell him how to do it. <laughs> Jehovah Witnesses, none, too busy knocking on doors telling everyone they have the wrong lights. Unitarians, we choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need for a light bulb. However, if you're in your own journey, you have found that light bulbs work for you, you are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service, in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life intended, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. Roman Catholics, none, they only use candles. <laughs> Methodists, undetermined, whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a dim bulb. Bring a bulb of your choice to the Sunday lighting service. Nazarenes, six, one woman to replace a bulb while five men review the church lighting policy. Lutherans, none, Lutherans don't believe in change. Jews, where's Jacob's ladder when you need it? Amish, what's a light bulb? <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> Unbelievers, none. They'd rather sit in the dark. Any way you look at it, no one likes change. In fact, one person put it this way. If you want to make enemies, try to change something. The reason being is when you do things exactly the same way, the same way you've always had did yesterday, it saves you from, from thinking and, and it just, you just kind of go with the flow. And yet things change. For those of you close to my age, Bob Dylan had a song from 1964 called For the Times They Are Changing. And I like the first verse, Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown. And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, and then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. And what was true in the 60s is definitely true today. This world that we are living in is changing radically. The good news is our lives personally, our lives individually as believers will one day radically change as well. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15:51, where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I like that. Now, as I've reminded us over the last couple of weeks, that from Matthew chapter 21 on, really is the final week of Jesus before the cross. Things were about to drastically change for his disciples. They were there in Jerusalem and, and Jesus spoke of the changes that would take place, starting with the temple, if you recall. He said in verse 2 of Matthew 24, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that shook the disciples up. So they came to Jesus and they asked him three questions. When shall these things be? What shall be the signs of your coming and the end of the age or the end of the world? 
We know, as I pointed out last week, that Jesus answered that first question in Luke chapter 21. It's there he gave in detail the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. All happened in 70 AD as Titus and the Roman armies came in, destroyed Jerusalem, as Jesus said would, and not one stone was left upon that temple upon another. It was all thrown down. So moving on to the next two questions, they said, what shall be the signs of your coming in the end of the age? We need to know that they were asking about Jesus' second coming to this earth. And so he laid out in great detail signs to look forward to, to show that his, his, his return would be near. What signs were they? Well, in verse 15 we looked at the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist demands to be worshipped as God in the newly rebuilt temple. We looked in verse 21 of the great tribulation period. Verse 24, the false Christ and the false prophets that would come on the scene and do signs and wonders. We looked in verse 29 of the the sun darkening and the moon and not giving her light and the stars of heaven falling and the powers of heaven shaken. So when 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 shall you see all these things in the context of what Jesus said? He says, know that it's near. What is near? His coming is near. Well, then we come to verse 32. And really, this is the beginning, you might say, of the practical section of the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because this is a sermon Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. It's really the end of the doctrinal section and the beginning of the application section. And understand this, that Jesus isn't giving us a chronological timeline in Matthew 24. This is a a sermon. And Jesus is giving us three applications in a sermon of what he has just laid out for us in, in the previous parts of this chapter. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the fig tree. Number two, the days of Noah. Number three, the life of faith. These are all dealing with how we should be living now in light of Jesus' soon return. So this brings us to our first point, the parable of the fig tree. Let's pick it up where we left off in verse 32. A parable, once again, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus says in verse 32 through 35, or 34 rather, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender, put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now this section of scripture, these few verses have had a lot of different interpretations. And I'm going to mention three. One in which I, I strongly disagree with. I don't usually point out the ones that I, I disagree with, just the ones that I, I agree with. But, but I think it's important that we look at this misunderstanding of, of these verses here. Because it's caused a lot of damage. And it's really it's turned many believers away from looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It's an interpretation known as the, as the preterist view or, or preterism. It basically teaches that Jesus is speaking here about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and that during that time everything in Matthew 24 has happened including the second coming of Jesus Christ. They teach that all that what Jesus was describing here in Matthew 24 happened in 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem. And they use verse 24 to back them up where they or 34 rather to back them up that says this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, in order to maintain that interpretation, in order to make these verses fit into that view, which you shouldn't do, obviously you have to do some spiritually, some, some serious spiritualizing to make it fit the text. 
Because Jesus said in verse 27, first the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And the idea that Christ would come and literally establish a kingdom on earth for a thousand years, that the millennial reign of Christ has to be spiritualized because it hasn't happened yet. We're told this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, that an angel comes down and says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. So if a thousand years doesn't really mean a thousand years, and if Satan is bound right now, i got to tell you, he's got a really long chain. A very, very long change. My, my point is this, is way too much you have to spiritualize in order to get this view to fit. There are things that are describing the sun darkening and, and the moon not giving her light and the stars falling from heaven and, and, and the powers of heaven that are shaken can hardly be applied to Roman, the Romans coming in in 70 AD and destroying Jerusalem. But they do fit in the book of Revelation written 21 years later, 91 A.D., when John describes the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming of Jesus Christ. So I don't hold that Jesus here is speaking here of the Predest view and that Jesus has already come back spiritually in 70 A.D. Now the second view, that's, this is the one I lean to, that could actually be a possibility, is that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And this is what's called a common view. And this is what I believe Jesus is saying here. Listen, we all know that Scripture interprets Scripture. And Jeremiah, Joel, Hosea, and others identified the fig tree as a nation of Israel. Now the amazing thing, amazing truth about Israel is that for centuries, Israel seemed to be a dead tree. In fact, if you recall in chapter 21, one of the most intriguing miracles that Jesus did was to curse a fig tree. And immediately that fig tree withered up and died. All of other Jesus' miracles were, were healings and feedings and for the benefit. But for this one, it cursed the tree and it died. Why? Because the fig tree was used as a, a picture of Israel. For three years, Jesus spent looking for fruit among the Jewish people, looking for them for, to receive him as the Messiah, but they would not. How soon was Christ's prophecy fulfilled about the withering of the symbolic fig tree being fulfilled? Again, 70 A.D. Israel's temple was destroyed. No longer was there a place to offer sacrifices. The opportunity to, to serve the Lord according to the precepts of the law ended. Jerusalem fell into ruin and the whole nation was expelled from their own land and dispersed throughout the whole world. Deuteronomy 28, 64-67 speaks about that. But in addition to saying that the Jews would be scattered throughout the world, God also said this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 8. But as the Lord lives, you brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. See, the Jews, 70 AD, they were scattered everywhere. But something happened historically that has never happened previously in world history. Without a homeland, the Jewish people kept their identity, they kept their religion, and they kept their ethnicity intact. No other nation in the world has ever done that. Every other country swallowed by another has become assimilated by the conquering culture within two generations. That's why you don't have Babylonian neighbors, you know, or Assyrian neighbors. But the Jewish people, they kept their identity, not for two generations, but for 2,000 years, through wave after wave of persecution, prejudice, and bigotry. 
And Satan was relentless in trying to destroy them. And, but he failed. Satan's plan backfired. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, the world said the Jews deserve a land of their own. World sympathy for the Jewish people for the first and only time was, was huge in history. So it was that on May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 66, verse 8, which says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. That fig tree that appeared dead and hopeless suddenly sprang back to life and blossomed just as Jesus prophesied it would. And according to verse 34 here in Matthew 24, that generation, generation that saw that happen would be the final generation. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What generation? The generation that sees the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now, for some of us that are a little bit older, maybe you got saved quite a few years ago, and you know that somewhere around 1980 and 1981, the anticipation grew, and so did our excitement. Expectancy filled our hearts, because if you believe that a biblical generation is 40 years, and if you add 40 years to 1948, and if you believe the rapture of the church takes place seven years before the Great Tribulation period, then you're going, man, then the rapture should be taking place like 1980, 1981, and there was these bumper stickers that came out and the t-shirts and the posters were printed. Jesus is coming. Maranatha, which means come quickly, Lord, became the watchword for every believer. Even a, a book by the, the, written by the, a man named Edgar C. Wisenot, he was a former NASA engineer and, and Bible student, he predicted the rapture would take place somewhere between September 11th and September 13th. And so in 1988, he published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, 81 came along, 82, 88, 89, 90, 91, then something began to happen. A whole bunch of radical Christians began to cool off, saying, maybe we're going to be here for a while, maybe we went overboard with this Jesus is coming thing. And They didn't say those exact words, but, but that's what they were thinking. And this Dulling of expectancy came over our generation. But you see, here's the problem. We don't really know how long a biblical generation is. There, there is reason to believe that a biblical generation is 100 years. So there could be 48 reasons why the Lord's coming back in, in 2048. There's, uh, you know, 67 reasons why the Lord's returning in 2067. I mean, there's a good, you know, biblical evidence to point that a generation is 71.4 years. So that from 1967 to 71.4 years, we have October 2019. The Lord can come back today. All those days are possible for the Lord's return. It may be before I get finished with my message this morning. You say, Amen. Okay, but Pastor Tom, you're date setting. No man knows the day or the hour. Listen, there's nothing wrong with speculating. Jesus says when you see the signs and the seasons, you know that summer is near. But here's the problem. For me to tell you without a doubt that it will be on such and such a day because of some secret formula that I, I have come up with, that's wrong. In fact, in the early days of the Jehovah Witness cult, it started with date setting of the Lord's return. It's dangerous. It can be detrimental. Let me say what God's Word says about date setting in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. 
So if Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, I think that pretty well means no one knows the day or the hour. I mean, you can't say, well, I know Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, but, but I think I figured it out. Oh, so you know better than Jesus. Well, I can tell you, it's not going to be that day because Jesus said no one knows that day or the hour. In other words, it's foolishness to set dates. But know this, it's not foolishness to be aware of the signs of the times and know that Jesus' return is near, even at the door. In fact, we're told not to be ignorant of the seasons. And that brings to what I, I mentioned earlier, how there's a third understanding of this verse, back in verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, when its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. What is the fig tree? Well, here's a profound answer. Ready for it? It could just be a fig tree. That's it. This is called the plain sense view. You know, it's been said, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Jesus could be using a very natural illustration because there are, there are many fig trees in those days in Israel. And Jesus perhaps is speaking, and he looks at, looks at one and turns and says, hey, hey, when you see the fig tree, and you know it just begins to bud, what does that tell you? That summer is almost here. Same thing if Jesus were speaking to us today and, and if he was, might lean down and pick up a, a leaf on the ground and it's golden and it's laying there on the ground. He said, when you see this leaf falling on the ground in, in Springfield, you know that, that autumn is near. And then we look for all the hidden meanings behind the word leaf. Okay, what is it, the leaf? It actually Jesus is about a leaf. It's about the times and the seasons. It's not about the leaf. Really, it's about Jesus coming back. You know, you, you look around, you feel the cold in the air, you know the fall is here, you just know. And so he just could be using this, the budding of the fig tree as an example of what to watch for regarding his return. For although no one knows the exact day or hour of his arrival, you know the seasons, and we know that it's around us. Again, I, I tend to lead towards a second view, but, but it could just be a, a fig tree that he's illustrating for the times and the seasons. But look what he says in verse 35. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. These things that I have spoken of, they will happen, regardless. Verse 36, But at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then he gives us another sign, another application, if you will, for what he's talking about. And this is our second point, the, the, the days of Noah. Look at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, like Noah, you and I are end-time believers. Noah lived before the flood, we before the flood of fire. Noah spoke of a coming rain, we speak of the coming rain of Jesus Christ. Just as it was in Noah's day, so it will be in the days of Jesus' coming. What was it like in Noah's day? Well, I can tell you there's many, many similarities, and we don't have time this morning to go through all of them, but, but, but let me just give you four examples found in Genesis chapter 6. Number one, in the days of Noah, there was a population explosion. Listen to Genesis 6, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when man began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. So, due to the fact that, you know, men during Noah's time, a man and woman lived eight, nine hundred years old, there's probably five to six billion people at least on the planet during the time of the flood. You know, we're fast approaching eight billion people on this earth today. In fact, according to worldometers.com, as of this morning at 7.18, when I was going over my notes AM, there were 7,736,740,000 people in the world today. A website also tells us that uh, in the 20th century alone, the population in the world has grown from 1.65 billion 
to 6 billion. In 1970, there were roughly half as many people in the world as there are today. So as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of Jesus coming. Men will begin to multiply on the face of the earth, and we are multiplying. Secondly, in the days of Noah, Genesis 6-4 tells us that there's an abnormal, uh, immoral sexual activity on the rampage. Listen to Genesis 6-4. It says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So too today uh, is a time of abnormal sexual practices, things that we thought were unthinkable a generation ago, are now commonplace. They're accepted today in our society. Maybe you've caught this this past week. It's been kind of all over social media. Uh, the recent news from Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic candidate for president, uh, is a, a classic example of this. These are, uh, this is uh, uh, the word from Franklin Graham. He posted this. He said, uh, Beto O'Rourke threatened that if any church, religious organization, universities that did not go along with their LGBTQ platform, including same-sex marriage and gay transgender rights, they should lose their tax-exempt status. The audience cheered. This would be a step towards silencing the voice of the church and the influence of Christian universities and organizations. This is what godless socialism did in Eastern Europe, shutting down the churches and imprisoning pastors who disagreed with the communists. As for me, I will not bow down at the altar of the LGBTQ agenda, nor worship their rainbow pride flag. I'm going to stand with the word of God, the Holy Bible, which is the truth from cover to cover. I say amen. That was great words from Franklin, and and I agree 100% with them. But as it was in the days of Noah, abnormal sexual practices going on. It's on the rampage today. Third thing we see is in the days of Noah is the wickedness of man was great. Genesis 6-5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, you have to admit that we're getting close to that today as well. Man's heart, just evil after evil. And you think, man, who thinks up these things? It's just the evilness of man's heart. See, during the flood, God decided to lovingly put them out of their, their misery. The flood accomplished quickly and mercifully the destruction their sin and perversion would bring about eventually and inevitably. The final number four that I see here in the days of Noah, Genesis 6.11 says, The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Watch the evening news. You know, you just see it. I read recently that the high rate of suicide among policemen is attributed to the fact of the thousands of violent crimes that are committed in this country, only a handful of criminals are actually brought to justice. No wonder police are frustrated because violence runs rampant while justice is just ignored. Jesus said these are the things that are going to be happening in the last days. And I would say we are as a society very much like the days of Noah. Jesus also points out here in verse 38 that in the days of Noah they were totally oblivious to the pending judgment that was coming. Look here at verse 38 and 39. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, they were going on business as usual. Man, just going with the flow. Not aware that the whole system was soon going to be, be covered in water. 
They're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark. They did not know anything was wrong until the flood came. Again, Genesis 6, 5 and 6 says this, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The point is that God came to a point when he says, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. I've had enough. I can't take it any longer. Judgment is coming. Despite the fact that God had raised up Noah, a preacher of righteousness, warning them of the judgment to come, despite the fact that day in and day out, Noah kept building that ark, regardless of, of, of the harassment that he got, the people still went about their business, living their lives, ignoring the warnings of the men of God, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Just preoccupied with the matters of everyday life. Just not, not thinking about it. Again, don't we see the same thing today? As the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. How little does this world uh, we live in realize how close we are to the day of God's wrath and judgment? And even though man may uh, you know, profess an acknowledgement of God, he's living as though God doesn't exist. What America needs today, what this world needs today, is a spiritual revival to sweep this nation before it's too late. Now, look at verse 40. We come to a section that has a couple different viewpoints as well. One says that this is speaking of the end of the tribulation period when Jesus will separate the goats from the sheep and one will be taken away from judgment and the other will be left to spend a 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ on the earth. The other view that they say that Jesus is speaking of is the rapture of the church. Now, again, remember that Jesus isn't giving us a chronological timeline. This is a sermon, and with that in mind, back up to verse 38, where Jesus says that the last days, when, when it will be deep, like the days of Noah, they'll be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39 says this, And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, verse 40, that two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Stop there for a moment. Take a look at that word took in verse 39. I want to underline it. In the original language, it's the word "ario." It means to lift up and carry away or to be swept away. Now, Noah didn't know when the rain was going to start falling. All he was told was to build an ark and get ready for that day. It took 119 years before the rain would start falling. But when the rain finally came, Noah, his family, was found faithful. They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. His family was protected from the storm. All the others were swept away. The flood came and took them all away. Ariel. But then again in verse 40, Jesus says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding to the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now you, you would think, well, that word taken is the same word as took, but it's not. That word took is aereo, but the word for taken is paralambano, or to take or bring some along with you, to take along. Interesting, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, that says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. Literally, Jesus is coming to take you away with him, rapture us to be with him. He's just simply not going to protect us through the judgment. He's going to remove us from the judgment. As he's told Christians over and over again, we are not appointed to the wrath of God. 
He's told us that the gates of hell should not prevail against His church. See, we're not going to be removed as much as we're going to be received into something so much better. Meet the Lord in the air and the clouds to ever be with the Lord. So it's the rapture Jesus is speaking of here, or is it the sheep and the goats? I think they both can be right. Both can be right. At the second coming of Jesus, He'll separate the goats from the sheep, as we'll see in chapter 25. And there'll be those left to spend a thousand years with Christ during the millennium. But we also know the rapture of the church will separate the true believers in Jesus from the false ones. So then Jesus' words in verse 42 really apply to all of us. And this brings us to our third and final point. Look at verse 42. Uh, it's, this is a life of faith at number, point number three. Verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do, you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, will, when he comes, will find so doing. So there are three things in these few verses that Jesus points out that we are to be doing in light of his coming. We're to be watchful, verse 42, to be ready in verse 44, and be faithful in verse 45. Be watchful, be ready, be faithful. First, be watchful. Interesting idea that it's coming, uh, the coming of Christ is likened to a thief we see, see here. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're told that as a church, we're not to be overtaken. The day's not to overtake us as a thief. Uh, Jesus here is really not coming as a thief, not for the church. He's going to catch the world like a thief unaware. You know, if you, if you have a thief and, and, and they, they call you up and say, hey, you know what? Could you leave your back door open? I'm going to break into your house on uh, October 13th, and and I just want to kind of make it easy into your home, and and I'm going to take your TV, I'm going to take your, I don't know, some of the stuff you got, and I'm going to steal from you. I mean, if they told you the day and the hour, then you would make sure that you know what, you try it, buddy. I got my baseball bat, I got my pit bull, I got my shotgun. I'll call the police. You know, you go for it. You know, you'll be watching and you'll be waiting. No, when a thief strikes, he doesn't give you any warning. He doesn't give you any heads up. You know, you're caught off guard. Jesus is teaching that for us, the day should not take us by surprise. We just need to be watchful. You know, it's like a friend who says, I'm going to pick you up tomorrow between 9 and 10. I'll be at your house and, 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 and we'll, we'll go. And, you know, 9 o'clock comes and you're watching and you're waiting and it doesn't show up at 9.30. Start take, hey, you know, it's almost 10, 10 15, come to the way. Where are you? Then they finally show up. But you're watching and you're watching and you're waiting and you're waiting. And that's the idea here. You're ready. And again, we'll look at that in chapter 25. But the, but the idea Jesus wants us to know is that he's, that he's coming. The Lord says, I will come again. And we say, great, tell me the day and the hour and the time so I can goof off for about an hour before and then, then, I'll, then I'll get right with you. You see, if we knew when the rapture was going to come, the day and the hour, I think would goof off. Which, okay, the Lord's coming in ten minutes. Now I'll get my act together. But if he says, man, I'm coming in an hour that you don't know, then, then what do you have to do? You have to be watchful. Number two, you have to be ready. Look at verse 44 again. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's why I really have a hard time with someone that would say that Jesus could not come at any moment because they say the rapture is going to be a mid-trib rapture. So halfway through the tribulation, that's when the rapture is going to be. Or are they going to say the rapture is a post-tribulation rapture? It's going to come at the end of the tribulation. Well, then we would know. Why would we need to be watchful? We would know the time. 
See, I believe that we should live as Christians in the anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ at any moment. How should that affect me? I should be ready. We should be living in light that the rapture could happen at any moment. I mean, all through the New Testament, we read things like, let us cast off the works of darkness. Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. We're to walk in holiness and sobriety and putting on the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate, the armor of God, live a vigilant life. The Lord is coming. And there's an exhortation for us to be watchful and to be ready. Well, how do you make sure you're ready? Well, first and foremost, you've got to make sure that you've repented of your sins. That you're truly born again. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, we are born the first time in sin. You have to be born the second time spiritually in the God's family in order to be truly ready for the return of Christ. You have to invite Him into your life. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin to be born again. This means that you trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose again from the grave. So be watchful, be ready. Finally, be faithful. Look at verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Listen, we need to remember, we need to realize that we are stewards over everything that God has given to us. What has God given to us? Everything we have. Our money, every penny of it, not just 10% of it. It all belongs to God. Your house belongs to God. Your kids belong to God. Your clothes belong to God. Your car belongs to God. Your time belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God. So what are we doing with these things? Jesus is coming back soon. What are you doing with the knowledge and the gifts and your abilities and the resources you have to further God's kingdom, to share the gospel, to support missionaries, to minister to others, to be a blessing to others in serving the Lord? The faithful steward, Jesus says in verse 46, says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so sitting around, Listening to great sermons? No, doing. Doing, not sitting. Doing. Who are these faithful and wise servants that Jesus is speaking of here? I believe he's speaking of Christians. Why? But because of the word servant. That's exactly who we are. The Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. A lot of times people say, well, I, you know, I have uh, my beliefs and my plans and my future and my rights. You're a Christian. You're not your own. You belong to someone else. I mean, here's the real picture. You were a slave out in the open auction without any power to save yourself. One day Jesus came along and saw you on that auction block and bought you with his own blood. He purchased you. Now you should be a servant to him. You belong to him. Not because you have to, but because you want to. You understand uh, what God has done for you and it should cause us to say, Lord, I want to serve you now with my life because all that you have done for me You've forgiven me of all of my sin, you, you, all the wrongs that I've done. you put my name there in your book of life. That's why Paul would often call himself, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant means that, that, yeah, I've been released from being your slave, from your servant, but I still want to be with you because I love you so much. You see, God has given us our life. He's given us our talents. He's given us our gifts. He's given us resources. He's given us time. We need to be those faithful servants to invest that wisely to His glory. To be watchful, to be ready, to be faithful. Then Jesus says in verse 47, Surely I say to you that He will make Him ruler over all His goods. Listen, when we are, are raptured out of here, caught up to be with Christ, 
will stand before him, will be rewarded for our works. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. It's a reward seat, and faithfulness in a little will lead to more responsibility and greater blessings and privileges to, to, to those who are faithful. So I think a lot of times here and now, when God, you know, we think of, oh, just the here and now, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm not doing. God thinks of the hereafter. Life is not just here on this earth when we die, but, but it continues on. And, and what we do here is connected with our future. In the millennium, in the, in the new earth, we have responsibilities and opportunities. Many of our life streams that we never realized here will be realized there. Man, God gives us a new body. Man, the new body will be able to sing. I've always wanted to sing. I can't sing. Now I can sing. I don't know. You know, I mean, just new things. New earth, new millennium, responsibilities, opportunities. Man, if you were thinking just the afterlife was just floating around on clouds and playing a harp and, you know, if your idea of angels are little fat babies with wings that are kind of flying around over you, and you're going to be disappointed because that's not what heaven's going to be like. That's what eternity's going to be like. Bible says there's things for us to do, activities to be involved with, and we're going to be given responsibilities uh, from the Lord to serve Him and honor Him and to glorify Him. And those responsibilities, those opportunities and privileges will come that directly related to how faithful we were here on this earth while we are on this earth. Finally, what about this evil servant in verse 48? Look at verses 48 through 51 and then we'll close. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now some say because uh, he's the Lord's servant here in this parable that they are Christians and they're just being slothful and lazy and they're going to lose their salvation and God's going to come back and judge them. I think that is pressing this, that, that image way too far and you're reading more into it that's actually here. But there are such things as, as slothful servants. And there will be people who will not be looking and watching and they're not ready for his coming. Like in the days of Noah, once again, they're, they're eating and drinking and they're given in marriage and, and he says they're going to begin eating and drinking they're going to be you know, drunkards and they begin to beat up their fellow servants. When the Lord comes back, they're going to be exposed for their hypocrisy. You know, that come the judgment day, there will be people standing before Christ and they'll say, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Then I do all these wonderful works in your name. And what will Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because they were hypocrites. They never had that life-saving relationship with Jesus. They never lived for him. They, it was just a mask they were wearing. They were actors. They came, maybe came to church. Maybe they sang some songs and, and they owned a Bible. But, but you know what? They never truly were changed. What a horrible thing it will be when Jesus Christ returns for the hypocrite, the phony, the, the squandered life. One that lived only for themselves. God's going to hold them accountable for that. You know, the foolish servant thinks that he has all the time in the world and begins to live life more and more wickedly. There's a, a, a fable that tells of three apprentice demons who are coming to earth to finish their apprenticeship. apprenticeship and they're, they're talking to Satan, Satan about their plans to, to tempt and ruin mankind. The first demon says, I'm going to tell mankind that there is no God. Satan says, well, that's not going to do. It'll dilute some, but they, they know that there's a God. Second one said, I'm going to tell them there's no hell. 
Satan says, no, you're not going to receive no one like that. Men know even now that there's a hell for sin. The third demon said, I will tell them that there is no hurry. Satan said, that's good. Go and and do that and you'll ruin men by the thousands. That's right. Tell them that there's no hurry. I think that's the most dangerous delusion of our time today is to think that there's plenty of time. I'll get my life right later on. I just I want to live right now. I want to do what I want to do. And then later on down the road, I'll get my life right with, with you. Listen, the Lord is coming back. But why is he waiting? Why is Christ not come back yet? I mean, we looked at the, the prophetic lineup that's happening. We see how these events could, could begin to unfold at any moment. Times they are changing. What's stopping it? A better question is, who's stopping it? Here's the answer, Second Peter 3, 9. We'll close with this. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The only reason that Jesus has not come back is because He's waiting for a few more to enter into His kingdom. Wouldn't it be great if it happened today? I would love... This is just me. I would love for the last person to get saved before the rapture was someone here at Calvary Chapel. They hear the gospel. It's a Sunday morning. They raise their hand. Bless, I'm putting my, my faith and trust in you, Lord. And then, poof, we're out of here. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, yeah, man. We were just at church. Now we're here. Oh, this is awesome. And it's about time. You, man, we're here now, you know. But here's my question as we close. Are you ready? If Christ came back today, would you be ready? Well, you know, you might say, well, here's what I would do. You know what? I'm not ready yet, but I'm going to wait until I see more signs. And, and if I see that if the rapture is going to begin to take place, then I'm going to repent right there on the spot. Really? How fast can you do that? Can you do it in one one thousandth of a second? That's how fast the twinkling of an eye is. How fast the Bible says the rapture will take place. Oh, no, the rapture. God, I'm sorry. Oh, too late. Passed it. My point, there's no warning. It's not, hey, look, I think the rapture's taking place. No. It's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, one will be taken, the other will be left. Either you'll be taken to be with the Lord in heaven, or you're left on this earth to face the tribulation period. We had a saying back in the 70s, I liked it, get right or get left. Let me say this with, with as much love and concern and sincerity and warning. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not received the forgiveness of your sin, you will be left and it will be the worst day of your life to say the least. You don't want to wait until that day. Believe in Jesus right now, today. In the immortal words of Bob Dylan, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving, and you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a change in. Jesus put it better this way in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you're here and you're not saved this morning, please don't wait another moment. Give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. So many of us here, Lord, are so thankful that you opened up our eyes to see our need for you, to turn from our sin, and come to faith in you. We thank you for the hope of our salvation. We thank you for the 
the, the truth found in your word, Lord, that you will come back for us. And where you are, you will receive us up to, to, to where you're at. Lord, what a great hope that is. But Father, we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is not yet coming to that hope, they don't know if they were to die today that they would be saved. If you were to come back in the rapture of the church that they would go. They're unsure. Lord, I pray that if anyone is, is here today unsure, that they would make sure that they are sure. That they would repent of their sin, turn from it, come to you, say, God, forgive me, and be born again this morning. Lord, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Is there anyone here this morning you want that desperately? You want to be born again. You want your sin forgiven. You want to know if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Anybody at all. I want to give you that opportunity. You don't have a message like this without giving the opportunity for salvation to someone that may not know you, may not know, know the Lord Jesus. So raise your hand so I can pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that so many of us are assured of our salvation. Lord, and, and Lord, if we've not been living for you, Lord, especially we need to, to wake up and, make, and be watchful, be ready. Make those changes. To live a life of faith. Knowing that you could come quickly. And Lord, we are ready. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and do one.